Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as Pastor Dane Skelton shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Dane. If you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 22, Psalm 22, please. One of the great questions of the skeptic. The greatest objection to Christianity as we know it is, how can a good God let bad things happen to good people? How does the Bible deal with that question? And the standard answers run something like this. Well, he loves us, but he isn't powerful enough to do anything about it. Or, he's powerful enough to do something about it, but he really doesn't love us. He's just aloof and far away and he's he wound the world up the whole universe up like a clock and set it running and he's backed off and just standing there watching things he doesn't really care or third as the atheist likes to say guys he's just not there he's just not there but when we look at psalm 22 and when we look at what that psalm actually predicted we see an explanation that goes far beyond anything the atheist or the agnostic could ever imagine. Some songs take on a life of their own. They become the standards, not just of a generation, but a whole culture. They're woven into the fabric of what it means to be an American or an Armenian or a Japanese or Jewish or German or Georgian. Some of them we sing on patriotic days, like the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Some of them we sing when we're celebrating, like White Christmas. Some of them we sing when we are feeling especially spiritual, like Amazing Grace. But one song that is almost always, or I've always experienced it at most funerals, is Psalm 23. It is not only part of church life, it's part of cultural Christianity in America, or it has been up until very recently. It has been a pillar in times of grief. I've officiated at dozens of funerals and can remember it being read in most of them. But I have never seen Psalm 22 read at a funeral. Psalm 22 probably could be read at a funeral, but it is what I like to call the song of the cross. If we could say that every Christian knows Psalm 23, then every Jew in New Testament times knew Psalm 22. It was as familiar to the Jews of that time as amazing grace is to us. And like Psalm 23, it is universal. Everyone who has ever banged on the doors of a silent heaven when they were suffering or hurting, can identify with Psalm 22. Everyone who has suffered injustice or brutality or derision or ridicule can identify with Psalm 22. But it is also uniquely, prophetically, the song of the Savior, the song of Jesus, the song of the cross. Everybody knew the song in New Testament times. But none of them knew how powerfully prophetic that psalm was. David penned this psalm 1,000 years 
before Christ. Now think about that. Here we are in 2021. So don't just go back 100 years to 1921. Go back 1,000 years. Do you know what was going on in 1021 A.D.? Neither do I. Not off the top of my head. But David penned this psalm a thousand years before New Testament times, before Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Jesus lived this psalm and prayed it from the cross. It tells us what he experienced on that most holy of days. And most importantly, this psalm connects us to the hope and the glory of what happened on that day. Look with me, please, in verses 1 through 5. We'll just start out with 1 through 3. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Let's just stop there in verse 2. Do you see the, and I tried to get this in my reading of it, do you see the personal pronoun you there? It's repeated three times. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far? Why do you not answer? In the Hebrew grammatical structure, that makes that word the emphasis in these verses. So it's not like you and I would read it. I would read this and typically go, my God, my God, and I would make God the emphasis of the sentence the Hebrew grammatical structure makes you the emphasis in the sentence. So you would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the God of Jesus' infancy. It's the father that he pursued in the temple. I must be about my father's business. He is the father with whom Jesus he said, was always working. My father works until now and I am working. I always do what I see my father doing. John chapter 5, verses 17 and 19. So Jesus is not just screaming at an empty heaven. He's not just glibly going, oh my God, over some you know, trivial disruption of our lives like we do so often. He is howling out from the depth of his soul to the one who is his whole world, his whole existence. He would spend all night in prayer, repeatedly, commonly, over the three years of his ministry. He was howling to someone he knew, someone he had always been in intimate connection with as part of the Trinity from eternity past. And he uses the word, it's translated there in Matthew 27, 6. I mean, it's transliterated for us in Matthew 27, 46 as Eloi, Eloi, my God. And it's, then we, it's translated later for us, my God, my God. He's Eloi, Eloi. El is the word for God. Oi is my God, is the my part. El is the title that indicates Strength. There are a lot of titles for God. El is the title that indicates strength. So he's calling out to the mighty God who gave him the power to calm storms and to heal diseases and to walk on water. He's calling out to that God as he cries out from the cross. When we are in agony of spirit over something, 
And I don't know if you're like this. When I'm in agony of spirit over something, I find it very difficult to talk to God. It's like there's this block. And then finally, I'll, and, 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 and it's like I'll, I'll procrastinate about praying. I'll know I need to pray, but I'll procrastinate and hold God off and hold God off and hold God off. And I'll do a hundred other things until finally I'll just force myself to go in a room, go someplace in a hotel room and be quiet or whatever. And, and, and then when I finally do start talking, when I finally do start praying, sometimes I'll have to use the Lord's Prayer to help me get there, to help me start. But when I finally do, man, I'm not mumbling some little peaceable little, gee, God, I wish you would help me kind of prayer. I'm howling. God, you've got to listen to me because I am in pain and I'm hurting. I wonder if you're that way. Because when we're searching for God, when we're hurting, we're searching for God Almighty. We want the maker of heaven and earth to come and help us right now, to come and be with us right now. And so the prophetic spirit of Jesus spoke out through David 1,000 years before, through the mouth of David, that no matter what happened, no matter what kind of struggle, he would cling to God alone. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Why have you forsaken me, he says. It's almost like Jesus is thinking, I can understand the traitor Judas. I can understand Peter becoming afraid and running away. I can understand all those guys out in the garden, the disciples running away and scattering with that squad of soldiers. But you, why did you have to leave me alone here? Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Hell itself has for its fiercest flame the separation of the soul from God. There is no torture like being separated from God. But Jesus had been praying the whole time. He was praying in the garden the night before. You remember that? He was praying. He got up three times and came back to talk to his guys and they'd fallen asleep. He was praying, crying out to God, please take this cup from me. Please take this cup from me. Yet not my will. He was praying in the kangaroo court that they held for him. He was praying under Pilate's flagellum. And on the cross, he was still praying day and night. He was crying out to God and God did not answer. Jesus never deserved to be deserted by God. But this is why that happened. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be a sacrifice of atonement for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He was deserted so that we never would be. And for Jesus, this was total. The flesh was ripped from his back the crown of thorns was bashed into his brow. The clothes were stripped from his body. The nails were driven into his hand. The cross had been lifted up and tunk, dropped down into its hole. And in all that time, the sure and powerful presence of God that he had known from his infancy was absent. 
He was well and truly forsaken. And so we ask, how could God leave him this way? This is what the psalmist sang in the prophetic spirit of Jesus in Psalm 22. This is what Jesus said on the day that it all took place. So I just want to pause here and make some practical application for us. Because you can hear the passion that I feel about this, and you can read this and you can see the passion in this psalm the heartache and the cry of it. But some of us are, are, I think, afraid that God cannot handle our emotions or somehow God is ashamed of our, emotion, our emotions. God doesn't expect us to express emotions, and that's just wrong. And this psalm tells us that it's wrong. Only when we are completely transparent with God and confessing everything about ourselves, including how we feel about a situation, because he made us body, soul and spirit, mind, will and emotions. He made us as a package. And we can't excise some part of us out and set it off to the side and act like it's not there. Only when we are connecting with him on the whole level, mind, will, and emotions, including our bodies, are we really connecting with him. Dr. Henry, Henry Cloud addresses this in his book, Changes That Heal, and he outlines some of our misguided views of God that keep us from connecting with him on the deepest level. He gives probably half a dozen. I'm just going to give you the the three I thought were the most important. Number one is perfectionism. We get this misguided idea that God expects us to be perfect all the time, to be good all the time. And Cloud says nothing could be further from the truth and no distortion is more common than this one. God has said repeatedly, we're sinners. He tells us we're sinners. All over the place he tells us we're sinners. And so he expects us to fall. He expects us to have faults and weaknesses. He knows our frame, says Psalm 103:14, and he still loves us. He loves us even when we fall, even when we are not perfect. And accepting this humbles us away from perfectionism. We get this idea in our heads that somehow we're supposed to be perfect all the time, and then we get proud about it. The better we do, the prouder we get until we don't do it anymore. And we, we fall, we, we make a mistake, we sin. And then we can't accept ourselves anymore because we've convinced ourselves that God won't accept us either. And the truth is, when we realize and say, you know what, I'm a sinner. I've always gonna, I'm always going to be a sinner until Christ comes again. I'm never going to be perfect. God loves me anyway. When we accept that, our motivation comes from a completely different place. We're completely accepted in the beloved. We can have complete grace. And so he said, wow, he loves me anyway. Then that just motivates us to serve him more. Whereas perfection says, I got to be good all the time. And we get tired of that. We're not capable of it. Second misguided idea we get is Conditional love. God will reject me if I do. You fill in the blank. But God's love is unconditional. 
Some of us have been loved so conditionally that is only loved when we do exactly as someone else says we should do that we cannot imagine another person who will not reject us if we don't disappoint them, if we disappoint them, rather, says Cloud. But Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's unconditional love. So when you put your faith in Christ, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. He will never reject you no matter how many times you fail. If we can get that in our heads that we are loved unconditionally, it'll completely change our lives. Finally, there's this alienation. And this is the one that I worry about when I preach on holiness like I did a few weeks ago. We think that because God is holy, he is distant or he's aloof and unmoved. And that somehow he cannot understand our struggle. People sometimes think, says Cloud, that because God is God, he cannot understand human badness and weakness. But that is why Jesus became a man. He is a high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. That means, empathize means feel with. He actually feels what we feel. Hebrews 4.15. He's felt everything that we feel, yet without sin. So let me ask you a, an applicational question here, a very practical question. Do you ever feel alienated from God? Like he just, I've got this life experience and there's no way God could possibly understand what I'm experiencing right now. Are you operating on conditional love? God will only love me if. God will only love me when. Do you assume that you have to be perfect all the time? Jesus empathizes with us. He can feel what we feel. His love is unconditional and he knows you're not perfect. If you don't believe it, just wait a while. He'll show you. And he loves you anyway. And so how does that connect to Psalm 22? We need to have the freedom to express whatever it is we're feeling, however we happen to feel like failures, we need to be able to express to him, God, I feel alienated from you. I feel like you're far, far away. God, I feel like if I've not done this and this and this and this and this, somehow I won't be perfect. And he's like, hang all that. That's why my son died for you. You have complete access to me. I accept you as you are. You are welcome and received in the beloved. So Jesus is transparent about the agony of feeling abandoned. My point is we can be transparent about whatever we're going through. That's a very positive and powerful thing. Here's what he doesn't do, what he never did. He does not question God's character. He appeals to it. See, sometimes when people who don't really know God well experience bad things, and then they'll say, why is God doing this to me? And they'll curse God in their hearts. They'll, they'll feel like, they'll say, God's just a bad guy because I'm not being treated properly here. Jesus never questions God's character. 
In fact, he appeals to God's character as part of his prayer. Verse 3, is my God, verse 2, my God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. When you read Matthew 27, 46, that's the cry from the cross. It's known as the cry of dereliction. We don't think about this next verse in the psalm. Psalm uh, 22, verse 3. We hear the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we don't know verse 3. Verse 3 is, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. But just like singing the second verse of Amazing Grace, the Hebrews who were standing around listening to him would have known that this was verse 3. So he's calling out on the faithfulness of God in the past to get him through the present. It's very tempting when life is hard and God seems silent to get angry and accuse him. You don't care. Because we know that he's allowed this thing to come into our lives, but Jesus never does that. He says clearly what's happening, God, I feel abandoned, but he never says, you don't care. You're somehow a cruel and heartless being. He says, you've forsaken me, you're far from me, you do not answer but he never questions God's goodness, and that is a helpful thing for us when we are praying this prayer of abandonment. Tell God what you feel, tell him what you are experiencing, but never question his character. Instead, argue with him based on the goodness of his character. Do you remember when Abraham argued with God? God had told him what he was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham says, wait a minute. Will not the God of all the earth do right? What about for 50 people? If you can find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? Okay, for 50 righteous. Abraham knows there's, no, there's not 50 righteous people in Sodom. What about 25? Okay, for 25. How about 10? Can I hear 10? He's bargaining with God based on what? based on the goodness of God, based on his justice, based on his character, based on his kindness, based on his mercy, based on his love. We have permission in this psalm to argue our case before God. And I will tell you, I've done that on my knees right there in this sanctuary, arguing with him about decisions he had made. <laughs> And you know what? When you will trust God enough to argue with him, he will trust you enough to answer you. Because he answered me. So Jesus calls out and he mentions the hope of their history. Look in verse 4. And you, our fathers, put their... This is part of his bargaining, okay? This is part of his, his argument. And you, our fathers, put their trust... They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you and they were saved. And you they trusted and they were not disappointed. Noah trusted in you in the storm. You brought him through the flood. Joseph trusted you in the dungeon. You brought him to Pharaoh's side. David trusted you in the cave. You brought him to the throne. Jonah trusted you in the fish. You brought him back from drowning. Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, they all trusted you. And you brought them back. Jesus trusted God, and three days later, guess what happened? 
All of the forerunners of Christ, all the types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament trusted in God and they were not disappointed. Jesus says, how can I be disappointed? I trust in you. So what about those questions of the skeptic? He loves us, but he isn't powerful enough to do anything about it. He's powerful enough to do something about it, but he really doesn't love us. He's not there. But when we look at this psalm and we see that David prophesied all of this 1,000 years in advance, it opens up an answer that we had not considered. God is doing something to overcome evil that we would never have dreamed. He is wrestling evil to the death in the body of the king of goodness. He is swallowing all injustice in the suffering of the just one. He is putting out the fire of death in the unquenchable life of the living one. And he is breaking the power of sin and the curse by nailing it to the cross of the sinless one. God is doing something here that no human being could ever imagine because it's completely upside down from the way we operate. What did God do with the problem of evil on earth? Why do bad things happen to good people? There are no good people if you understand the Bible. He absorbed it all in the person of his son who sang the great question out of the depth of his soul while nailed to a cross. He suffered with us and for us so that we could be set free from the power of sin and death and hell. So verses 6 and following. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's exactly what they were saying. So they knew he was singing this song. They're quoting verse 6 to him. I mean, the, the irony of this and the, the sheer cruelty of it it was amazing. I, was a, I played a Pharisee in the Atlanta Passion Play for two years in the Atlanta Passion Play in the 1980s. And it was my job to holler some of these things at Jesus while he was on the cross. I could hardly do it. It was awful. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, it is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Jesus experienced the words of David 1,000 years later. This is not just 
poetic pathos. This is one of the greatest prophecies ever uttered. In the first stanza, he describes the agony of abandonment by God. In the next, he describes the agony of abuse by man, the crucifixion. And I learned what happens to a crucified man when I was part of the Atlanta Passion Play. It was part of our education for all this, and it is horrible. And aside from the pain that you can imagine from having spikes driven through your wrists and through your ankles... The essence of crucifixion is just a slow, agonizing suffocation and heart failure all at the same time. It's crushing heart pain. The thing is, nobody knew about crucifixion in 1000 BC when David penned these words. The Persians were the first ones to use it. They didn't use it until about 400 BC. So 600 years after David. Alexander the Great adopted it from them. Then the Romans, as they did everything else, became lethally efficient at it. But David had never seen a crucifixion. But he writes about it as if he had experienced one. So how strange would it be if you had been singing a song all of your life? If you're a Hebrew, just like us singing Amazing Grace, you'd been singing this song all your life. And instead of it bringing to remembrance times gone by, you found yourself watching the events described in this psalm happen in front of you. With these guys being crucified up on this hill. What if instead of telling you about your nation's past, you realized that all this time it had actually been predicting the future and the future it had predicted was now your present experience? Here's what I think. Here's what it would do to me. I would think that in spite of everything that had gone wrong, in spite of all the things you could not know, and all the mysteries you could not unravel, and all the missing pieces of the puzzle of your life, you would know without a shadow of a doubt that there was a God who loved you, that he had a plan for you, that he included you, that he was working to save you, and he had reached out from a thousand years in the past to say, I am here. None of this is happening by mistake or by accident. There's one last thing that this psalm points to that if Jesus was really praying it in his head, as I believe he was, explains what motivated him that day. And it's Hebrews 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So he gave us our faith and he perfected it. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he goes from the agony of crucifixion to the ecstasy of accomplishment. Jesus is accomplishing something here. He said just before he died, it is finished. He's accomplishing something. This is no accident. This is not the good, the bad guys winning. This is God turning the whole world upside down on purpose. The prophetic spirit of Jesus said something through David and the flesh and blood Jesus saw something from the cross that motivated the whole event that gave him the courage to drink the cup that God had given him. Look closely at verses 27 and 28 of Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth 
will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. That phrase, nations, is the Old Testament way of saying Gentiles. Gentiles is the Old Testament way of saying you and me. We're not Jews, but we are included. The psalmist is saying, and Jesus is fixing his eyes on this idea. On the other side of this suffering, at the end of my course, all, 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 it just repeats right there through the psalm, all my people will rejoice, the high and the low, the rich and the poor will sit down at the table of the king and be filled. The whole world will turn to the Lord. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will bow down to him and rejoice in what he has done. Look in verses 30 through 31, 29 through 31. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, so the living and the dead will come back to worship him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. It is finished. So Jesus was not a helpless victim. He was the son of David, the son of God, running a course that had been laid out for him from the beginning of time and prophesied a thousand years before he was born. So let me see if I can wrap this up and give us some practical things to think about. Three different types of people were singing the song of the cross that day. The first singers were the mockers. Matthew 27, verses 39 through 43 is a direct quote of Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It's a direct quote. They're throwing this verse back in his face. Because they know he's singing this song from the cross. He's crying out. And I don't think it's a stretch to know that these guys knew what they were doing. They knew. They were quoting David's song and they knew it was a messianic song. And they threw it in his face. And some people are still doing it today. The second singer of this national song was Jesus. He cried out, my God, my God, why? But he did more than just the sing the first line. He lived the whole psalm all the way to its end and accomplished his purpose. The third singers were people like you and me. And people like his friends John and Joseph of Arimathea and Mary Magdalene who watched all this happen in grief and horror. And they knew the psalm too. And they knew the lines that followed what Jesus cried out as surely as you and I know the verses of amazing grace. So what happened in those three singers' lives? Well, the first singers went away totally unchanged, except maybe they were just harder and more brutal and cynical. And they never knew the joy of being able to get to the end of that song 
The whole thing was just a big joke to those guys. The whole thing still is just a big joke to a lot of people today. The second singer conquered evil that day and sang the song to its very end. And the third group is still singing. We are the future generations talking about the Lord. We are the future generations proclaiming his righteousness to peoples yet unborn. We're those people. We were prophesied in Psalm 22. We are those who have been, as Paul explained, crucified with Christ and yet still live by the faith of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We're those people. And to that third group, Jesus issued this invitation to his table. And so I want to pray and joyfully share this bread and this cup with you today. Let's bow. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for loving us all the way to the death and beyond. Thank you for filling your servant David with this psalm that we may see it and connect to it and understand that from eternity past to eternity future, you know all, you see all, and you have done all necessary for our, our salvation. We thank you for this and we celebrate this bread and this cup in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.